0: So if you're an entrepreneur or an entrepreneur wannabe, what I would say is you would have to cultivate two things to be successful. And those two things are resilience at the bottom and humility at the top. And you have to be ready to ride those two waves and persevere. And if you can do that, you can be both happy and successful in your career and also happy and successful in your life.
1: This is Pete Moore on Halo Talks NYC. I have the pleasure of having my good friend Denise DeBon here from DeBon Development. Uh, she is going to educate our listeners on what it takes to build a brand and a product in the uh, skincare space. She's got uh, a lot of experience uh, and uh, has worked with a number of our clients, and uh, we're looking to uh, work on a couple of ventures together. So I want everyone to understand what it takes, and uh, it's not as easy as it might appear when you go onto the shelf and pick out a skincare bottle. Um, A lot's gone into the work behind it. So, Denise, welcome to the show.
0: It's nice to be here, Pete. Thank you for having me.
1: Excellent. So, why don't you talk about uh, your background, where you grew up, uh, where you went to school, where you started, because you've gotten... uh, all the stripes. If you were a soldier, you'd be uh, like a five-star general at this point.
0: (laughs) I grew up in Brooklyn. Um, My family was working-class factory workers, and um, it was a great childhood. And I uh, was a gifted child in school and um, was very well supported in that. And coming out of high school, I knew that I wanted to go to college and we didn't have the resources for that back then. And so I took a job uh, to put myself through night school, which I will tell you about that job, and it turned out to be a startup division of a beauty company. Mm -hmm. And that sort of launched my career in beauty and wellness. Um, and with that, I went to NYU Knights. Um, I was had limited exposure as a child, so what was I going to college for? I didn't want to be a doctor, and I certainly didn't know any lawyers. <laughs> so it was a teacher, and so I started my uh, education in university for teaching, and and um, and then. Uh, With that first job, which was Jermaine Monte, which is an old beauty company from the 60s and 70s. And we were launching a startup division called Montage. And there were three of us, a VP of product development, a VP of sales, and me. And they were on the road all the time. And so I got a lot of exposure to the president and the exec VP. And I got promoted in six months to a product Manager. Congratulations. That, that, thank you. That line actually in the 70s was interchangeable shades, Ooh. which was 30 years ahead of its time wow. and failed.
1: <laughs> well, failure, um, I've used this acronym a couple of times. Somebody told me it was uh, the first attempt in learning, is what fa- fail means. So I was like, all right, that makes sense. I like, that. I
0: like well, that. And look, 30 years later, it became a huge trend and was, you know, it's, it is wonderful and challenging to. To be a pioneer. Right. And I'll take the wonderful and challenging together all the time. But anyway, that sort of launched me into a career of startups in beauty and wellness. Um, initially, a lot of that um, was in the area of fragrance, Jeffrey being Gray Flannel, Ralph Lauren, sure. um, Lauren and Tuxedo and Polo. All of these were startups, but back then we didn't call them startups. Right. Calvin Klein, Obsession, Obsession for Man eternity. But they started
1: on the apparel side and then and then moved into the...
0: These were all licensing companies, right? We okay. were we were all sort of small uh, licensors of those fashion designers' names. It was sort of the... The era of designer fragrances mm-hmm. in the '70s and early '80s,
1: which is kind of now morphed into like a, the the celebrity or the person. But back then, it was affiliation with a brand.
0: Exactly, gotcha. it, it okay. was it was a lot of fashion designers back then,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and um, and then after a number of uh, designer fragrances that were, you know set trends in the fragrance industry and broke records. I was with a company called, I was one of the founders of a company called Griffin Development and we were a joint venture with the limited with Les Wexner. Mm -hmm. And we put Les Wexner specialty stores which were Victoria's Secret, and then we created Bath & Body Works into personal care. And that sound, may sound like a yawn today, but in the 90s, we were the first, and that whole distribution channel didn't exist mm-hmm. before that. And I mean,
1: Victoria's Secret, I think, was one of the best acquisitions of all time. Um, I think it was like one store that, that the Limited acquired and turned it into what it is. Yes. Today.
0: Absolutely. Huh? Seems it like
1: was, a no-brainer right now, but I, you know, everything at the time seems it was like, hey.
0: Exactly. It's exactly. cutting edge. Exactly. Uh, and so from there I exited once the Limited bought us out. I sort of exited and started Debonne Development, and that became a business development, concept development, product development company, mostly specializing in beauty and then evolving into wellness because all of it is sort of merging. Mm-hmm. And um, so people, you know, my elevator pitch is Dubond Development creates products, businesses, strategies, brands for people who don't need that, know they need it yet and for some who ask. Gotcha. <laughs> That's basically. Got
1: it. So when when you think about, you know, maybe just take a a new client as an example, you know, and you go through whether it's like an actual checklist, you go through a mental checklist of, you know, when do I get a prototype done? When do I get a sample, uh, you know, focus group? When do I go and file trademarks? When do I go and get the packaging? Kind of talk us through how your brain works on this, which is now kind of just, you know, routine to you. but you know, from a standpoint of people coming in and saying, hey, I've got this new idea and it's on PowerPoint, um, you know, I want to get it to a hundred million dollar company. Let's let's get it to five first to make sure, you, you know, you've got something. Right. Um, you know, how, how do you think about that and how do you assess, you know, where the where a product potentially fits in the market or, you know, who it displaces? So it's a somewhat of an open ended question, but yeah. just to, to say, you know, what's the sequence or what's the logic behind, you know, each step and where do you spend your money?
0: So, um, you know, everything begins with an idea, with an inspiration and a a concept, right? And so, and then what you're asking me is, what are the steps to the manifestation or the successful manifestation of that concept in the market? Right. And what are the things that I look for in something like that? Or how do I guide someone? And so, um, look, this has been not just today, but forever, whether it's a concept or a venture together together an idea, a service, a product, at the end of the day, everyone wants to know the answer to one question, and that is what's in it for me, Mm -hmm. right? And so whether it's to a VC, what's in it for them? To a consumer, what's in it for them? To a retailer, what's in it to them? For a publisher, that's really the question that everyone is asking, that, that one has to answer. That's what a brand is answering with a product, right. what's in it for the consumer. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of at the core of everything that I look at. And then I try to work with my startups, clients, millennials, VCs, whatever, to distill, uh, to see what the assets are that are in the idea or in the brand, and to distill it into a value proposition overall. And then to find um, what is the best course of action to build awareness, penetration, and success for um, that benefit, right? And so, so if somebody has a concept, the first thing that I, I ask them is to look at what's in the environment, what's, um, is there anything like it? Is who is this good for? Who is your target market? And I don't get into all of that traditional, you know, you have to identify your target market by, you know, demographics and psychographics and whatever. Who Who is this for and why would they want it? And mm-hmm. so and then distilling what that proposition, they call it, you know, unique selling proposition mm-hmm. is to the customer. Right. And If there isn't something that's obvious, then I start to look at synthesizing what's around in unique ways to create a value that may not be there and create a demand that may not be there, right? And then so then what are the steps after that? You know, writing a vision statement, a core vision statement that what are the assets, what are the benefits, who it's for, then taking that and creating that into a larger, let's call it a deck or, you know, that goes through what the strategies are for Um, developing that concept into something and then what would be necessary? What's the distribution? Who are the partners? What's the execution? And going through all of that in a very disciplined way. Mm -hmm. You know, um, success is magic and discipline (laughs) and a lot of hard work. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's sort of what I go through. One of One of the things that I think that is uh, a unique skill for me is that I'm very discerning. I cut away, a lot of people call me the knife or the surgeon or whatever. I cut away all the excess and try to get to the core a value of what's there and if it's and then try to build from there and mm-hmm. go through a very narrow hole and then mm-hmm. you know through that funnel create something a lot of light coming out of it
1: got it that, that that's great uh i was just reading a book with uh by seth godin and he said you know a brand is a is a promise and like that you've got to stand behind that promise and if you deviate from that you know you, you basically have nothing so um when when you look at a new company that comes to you, where they have, you know, a fair amount of friends and family capital, or they've got a series A round, and you kinda see in your market, it seems like they're very, very low barriers to entry because you've got a lot of copackers and you've got a readily available amount of raw materials that are going into these ingredients and I don't know, we used to like make potion as a kid, so it's like all these concoctions. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, so so what do you how do you build a moat around one of these businesses?
0: That's a great question. So, number one, Seth is correct, a brand is a promise, and delivering on that promise, so right now we're referring to skincare, right, right in particular. And in skincare, it's about articulating your point of difference, what that promise is, and delivering on it over and over again. And then building that relationship of trust with the consumer that, or the user that this is authentic and it delivers what you're saying. So mm-hmm. if you're doing that well, if you've distilled your promise and well enough and in an exciting way to get somebody to try the product if you are deli- so you know that they want your promise mm-hmm. because they've bought it the first time right they've bought into your promise you must deliver on that promise so and not overpromise so be very specific and articulate exactly what you're offering them and then make sure you give it to them. If that happens, chances are you'll get repeat pur- purchases. They will start referring it to other people, friend, mm-hmm. other friends and family. And then it starts virally. You know, we used to call it referral-based marketing. Now you can call it influencers. You can call it a banana. I don't care what sure. you call it. But the best comes—the best references come from other people and other users.
1: Got it. So when, when you look at uh, a company... And you say, okay, let's say they compete again, or, or there's Neutrogena, as an example, as a, a similar type of, you know, organic skincare, you know, anti-aging cream. And you see a Neutrogena commercial, you know, at least every other night, mm-hmm. you know, on cable. Mm-hmm. You know, how, how do you assess whether, you know, look, they're going to the masses and you're going to like a niche, a niche or, or, or you know, the classes or, or what have you. How do you kind of... Um, Like uh, if you were like in a bumper pool game or something, like how do you kind of say like, okay, like that's like an 800-pound gorilla. So we're going to like kind of stay out of their way or we're going to basically say, hey, look, you know, I see an opening there. How do you you think about that?
0: So um, I tend to look at the Giants as the opportunities for acquisition. Right.
1: To, to, to build a company for them to be interested. Exactly. Right.
0: Because I feel that they are machines that are built to keep their brands going. Right? They are not necessarily built to take risks on new concepts mm-hmm. and new products right? Even invention and innovation from uh, an ingredient level, right, Mm -hmm. or a service or whatever, they tend to buy into it later. I mean, there are many of these companies now that have launched, you know, development funds, very small accelerators and things like that to sort of, um, not as investments, but just to sort of keep the, their fingers on the pulse of what's happening out there, right? So I see them as the acquirers. Now, if Neutrogena, if there was no other opportunity in the market Neutrogena would be selling to every single person. And that's not the case. And until a brand is selling to every single person on the planet, right. that reflects an opportunity for someone else to come in and communicate in a way that resonates to someone else, even if they're buying Neutrogena. That's,
1: that's interesting. Well, you know, you make a good point about um, these companies as acquirers. And if we go back 20 years, like Coca-Cola, as an example, if we use the beverage market, which I know something about, not, not really about the skincare market, but, but Coca-Cola used to try and create these new brands. And, and none of them were authentic because they were coming out of you know, some room in Atlanta with you know, a couple of uh, people in, in R&D. And I think at one point, they basically said, look, we're trying to build all these brands and it's just not working, even in the beer industry. And they said, you know what? I'd rather overpay for an acquisition, when somebody's actually made some traction, then waste money on R and D when I'm not really coming up with anything that anyone really is interested in. So, you know, you see like Vitamin Water, or you see uh, what is it Body Armor, or some of these other drinks, and they they have these eye popping valuations. And you know, if you're doing the math internally at a Coke or a Pepsi. You know, they're saying, "Well, look, you know, we could have burned a hundred million dollars on R&D and have zero, or we'll just pay two hundred million dollars and we'll buy this company that has cash flow and shelf space." So it seems like the same thing that the skincare companies and and the beer, bit, you know, and the beer companies—they they bought all these craft craft beer.
0: Yeah, you know, and, what they, and, and their um, growth and profit comes from more distribution, right. broader, global, right? So it's not from uh, the core strategy. It's from actually building out more distribution on a model that's already existing, right? right? So,
1: so basically, to, to, to kind of sum it up, they're basically saying to all these entrepreneurs, like, when you have something that's a value, I'll overpay you for it, but I want a hundred of you to basically take your own capital risk with your VC groups, and I'll take the top ten, and then I'm gonna win because I'm gonna make money from the distribution because the margins are so high, and I've got the fixed distribution channel in place. So, so basically, we're basically building businesses to a point to get on their radar screen, and if you and if you put them together properly, you know, once you hit a certain revenue target, I don't know what that is in the skincare industry, maybe you can. You know, like when do, when do some of your clients get to a point where some of these bigger players start knocking on their door? Is it five million in revenue? Is it 10? Is it? Yeah,
0: it could be anywhere from one million when somebody sees something really innovative going out there and they want to jump on board. But it's mm-hmm. typically five to 10, something like that. And, and again, you know, there's lots of reasons. One of the things that, one of the companies and acquisitions that I talk about a lot um, is Lauder with Aveda. Years ago, right? When when Lauder bought Aveda, which was, you know, quote, a, a natural hair care line, for okay. example, um, it's not like Lauder could not have done a natural hair care line. They had origins, whether that was fully natural or not, and I don't want to get into that <coughs> at the moment. But one of the things that Aveda brought to them that they didn't have was salon distribution. Mm-hmm. And because they got a new distribution channel, the amount that they paid, the multiple they paid was very, very high Mm -hmm. because they got a brand, but they also got an entirely new distribution channel, Mm -hmm. which was very appetizing for them. So there's lots of extra things that come into play. Mm -hmm. So it may be a new product. It may be a new consumer base, like right. oh, it's really hot with millennials and they don't have a lot of product going to millennials. So whether or not they could have done that product already, this product is already, you know, tracking with millennials and they want to get into that group and learn more. So there's lots of things that happen internally in those organizations that lead them to make those acquisitions. And some of them have to do with product, but a lot of them have to do with more than that. Right.
1: You know? Yeah. I mean, it was in, in, you know, a lot of our listeners are uh, either you know, working or or participants in the in the health and fitness industry, and you see that Equinox made a strategic investment and then acquired all of SoulCycle, and that was basically you know a different channel to get new new consumers or to even protect some of the consumers that are already at Equinox. And then when Rumble started getting a little bit of buzz, they said, "Okay, I'm going to go and take an equity stake in Rumble because I want Equinox to be known as like the authority on fitness right. and And lifestyle, and if some of our consumers are going there, I want them to know whether, you know, the Equinox team, you know, had this in a meeting or not. You know, I think in the back of their mind, they must be saying, like, I don't want someone else to take up the mind share. And I'm going to be able to say I own it, whether I own 5% of it or 50% or 100%. You know, I own a piece of that, right. and that that's that's powerful. They for, want from part of that customer.
0: You right. know, and, and like, uh, lo- you know, the big beauty companies, they, if somebody's buying another product from somewhere else, they want that customer. If they can afford to get that customer and have them buy that product. I mean, who, who, any one of these companies can create schmidt's deodorant or any of these natural things but but they already have they already are tracking they have a customer base that they may want they can get other things from that and so it's much and they also by that time that they make that acquisition it's metrics right it's equations they know what the equations are you know the risk is minimized because of that And again, they can add more distribution to it. And yes, they want that consumer. It's one of the reasons why, you know, beauty companies have so many products. You know, if sort of you're doing, you know, uh, eyeshadow really well and your customer is going to leave you to go buy a fragrance or a mascara from somewhere else, you're going to offer them that mascara at the counter if you can. If it's believable and it's on brand Mm -hmm. and whatever, you're going to offer it to them
1: anyway. So when when someone comes to you and they have an idea, do you usually start with one SKU or do you like, do, do you start with several, do, do you feel like how important is it to have a line and how is it important to have a product? And then one, one, one thing that's come up in the past um, in conversations where someone's come up and with a great idea and it's like, okay, is that a product or is that a company? And there's like right. a clear distinction. And right. also like what frustration are you solving? And you kind of touched on that before about, you know, what's the brand promise, what's unique about it. The unique selling proposition is like what, frustration are you solving for me that some of these other products have not really addressed properly so how do you how do you think about that without an entrepreneur getting to the point where like oh I came and talked to you about like this one you know organic skincare product now you're you know saying I should have like a line of 20 different anti-aging and wrinkle and you know night cream and day cream and right coffee cream or whatever else
0: so um sometimes I create products and brands that launch companies and sometimes I create companies that launch products and brands Gotcha. and it can go both ways. So sometimes a product is a company, right? It can be a unique product that launches an entire company, right? And, and that happens often and that's great when it does happen. Um, sometimes, and there are products that can stand alone, for instance i'll give you an example just sort of cuz we're talking about skincare you know a nutraceutical for anti-aging mm-hmm. right a nutraceutical for anti-aging can launch alone and it can launch a company and then you can build topical products or have not can they have done that and then you can brand you can build topical products to add to that regimen if you want something like that but that sort of was a new form let's just say tw- 10 years ago. It's not as much today as it was back then, but a product, you know, a company can be launched f- from something like that. Gotcha. Or somebody, um, I don't remember the uh, venom. I think it was with a limp plumper,
1: oh, okay. you know,
0: again, 10, 20 years ago, there was this very exciting peppery limp lip plumper.
1: Yeah. I never and- use it.
0: <laughs> and um, and it worked and it sort of broke through and it launched a company, mm-hmm. um, you know. So, and then once that happens, you know, someone like that might back then, this was before social media, you know, may have gone to QVC. And then once QVC starts to build awareness with that customer base, you want to feed them more from the brand or whatever. So um, I like to be as streamlined, I told you this, like I'm the knife, the surgeon, I cut away. If something doesn't need to be flanked by other products to deliver on the promise, or to articulate a point of difference, then it's not necessary. Is it necessary to communicate something that's more and different? And sometimes it could be the same as what someone else is offering, but you're communicating it in a way that is appetizing to someone else that's not buying it already.
1: Got it. Before we uh, finish up here, I just want you to maybe help clarify either a myth, a myth or a truth. Uh, every time I see a, a skincare line or I see some kind of, um, you know, sea salt or whatever, I, I, someone's told me in the past or I've somehow I've picked up that that's like an eighty or ninety percent, you know, gross margin on these products. So, so the question is: one, is that true? Two is it true, but there's so much in the selling cost and the distribution cost that you can't really look at that as like the, the actual number of what the potential profitability is, right. or, uh, three is, um, you know, are, are the, are the products that much? Like I usually look at a, like a cost of goods sold. If the gross margin on a product is so high, then it's, you know, like it has so much like engineering or like value add or patent to it, you know? And in this industry, it seems like a lot of these products don't really cost that much to actually put it in a bottle. So maybe you can share some of that without giving away the secret sauce of the whole industry. And then somehow the stocks drop of all these big uh, cosmetic companies.
0: So um, the actual formulation itself inside a skincare product may not be... So to answer the first question... Um, the cost of goods is is low considering the retail price of a skincare product. It's one of the most favorable categories, even in beauty, right? You know, it has better cost of goods typically than fragrance might, mm-hmm. um, and or uh, color cosmetics would, and and part of that has to do with uh, the packaging. Sometimes the packaging for skincare is much simpler than. Uh, fragrance, which would have a lot of custom tooling and gold plating and mm-hmm. maybe moving parts, et cetera, et cetera. But in general, beauty and skincare have ve- low cost of goods and favor very favorable margins. There is probably more spent in uh, packaging than mm-hmm. food, for sure. instance, or beverage or something like that. And so you sort of add into that. And there's... A lot more, well, a lot spent on marketing to Mm -hmm. communicate the beauty of it. What I'm using, it kind of, it's it's funny, right? I don't mean to be funny, but what is the beauty of this? Does it feel beautiful? Does it look beautiful? What is the experience of it? All of the, and what are you getting from it? Um, Typically, you would not launch uh, a product in beauty or in skincare, and not plan if you had the budgets. And I'm not talking about a maker, you know, at home doing it organically and growing. But if you're really raising the money to launch a company um, and want to have all, you know, all of your resources, you would probably plan at least thirty percent of your sales to be spent in marketing the first year, maybe even 40, mm-hmm. right? Gotcha. Something like that. Um, with social media and Facebook ads and all of the above, the sort of algorithms and equations are very sophisticated, so you, that could be a lot more efficient than it was when you were buying print ads 20 years ago.
1: Gotcha. Maybe the thing to tell consumers when they say, oh, the price of this is so high, it's like, well, so I, you have to pay me to educate you on what you're buying, maybe that's the way to say it. Like you're well, paying for an education. It's cost you five dollars for me to tell you like what what this what's gonna happen to you.
0: You're also paying <laughs> for a lot of R and D. Right. Right. I mean, so some of these um, almost
1: like a drug company exactly. in, a, in a way, so like a, a drug lot of, discovery business. Right. It yeah. takes
0: even for a skincare you know product, it takes years to get the formulation correct and balanced and there's stability testing and compatibility testing and human testing. And you know, there may be patents, there are development costs. And so that the actual cost of the product is after all of those development costs. All of the years of figuring out how to get the formulation right, mm-hmm. how to get it packaged in a way that is consistent with what you the promise that you're offering. and then all of the branding and all of the experts and the people that learn that um, help you communicate it in a way that the ultimate consumer sees the benefit and the value. That's great. And break through.
1: Sure, sure there's, all, there's definitely a lot of noise. It's not not easy to market new products. It looks easy because you've got no barriers to entry, but you've also got big barriers to, to audience right. reach. Well, uh, Denise, thank you for uh, for coming on, giving us a uh, quick education on the uh, on the skincare industry. If you need a knife, please go to Debon Development. <laughs> Ms. Knife is here. We've worked with her. She's got our halo stamp of approval, and we look forward to working with you in the future.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Thank you.